we've been looking at this movement of mind, this mind of grasping, and discovering how difficult that is when we find ourselves caught in that particular force of mind. And so we're getting direct evidence of the Buddha's teaching of the Four Noble Truths, that there is dukkha. (laughs) I think we all can agree on that. (laughs) There is this unsatisfactory nature of life, and that there's a cause for this dukkha. There's a cause for this pain, and that cause is this grasping, this attaching, holding on. This way we can see how we identify with the conditions of our mind and our body as who we take ourselves to be. And we're very much caught in that. We're caught in that. We can see that it's not easy to let go. We might understand that the solution, as the Third Noble Truth says, you know, that there is a release of this cause of suffering. There's a way we can come out of it. We can be free of it, which is the letting go. Even though we know that, we can't let go. You know, you see that it's not just we don't have that kind of control and say, okay, yeah, I can see this is painful. I'll let it go if it only was that easy, right? But we can see that as much as we may want to let go, we can't let go. We see how painful we feel, the difficulty, we can't let go. And so I hope in seeing that, then maybe you stop trying to let go. It's like, just (laughs) let go of letting go. (laughs) And relax. It's just like, relax, just like, relax. (laughs) Because hopefully we can see that because we can't just let go, the only way that letting go happens is through clear seeing, through wisdom, through understanding. And so when we see, when we understand the conditions that are giving rise to that pain and we see it clearly, then we say, oh, yeah, why am I doing that? And then something lets go. It's like something lets go. It's like the letting go is a byproduct of wisdom. The letting go is a byproduct of, of, of deep seeing into the nature of this suffering. So the, so the first noble truth is to understand this and the second noble truth is to, um, to um, abandon the cause of suffering, like do what it takes, engage in the, the conditions that are going to give support to the understanding and to the wisdom so that you can let go. Because otherwise, you just, we just keep continuing and repeating the same old things again and again and again. So we, the only thing it seems that we can do is to engage in some kind of practice that will bring about more understanding and wisdom. And that's what we're doing. You know, and the, prime, the foundation of that is the mindfulness. It's the practice of mindfulness because we need a tool. We need a tool to actually be able to, pay, to look at these conditions. If we don't know how to look at the conditions of our mind and body, then nothing's really going to happen. Nothing's going to change. So we got this. We have this tool 
the tool just happens to be our own consciousness, you know, this reflective consciousness that has all the characteristics and all, all the qualities we need for this investigation. So one of the things we need to do is get familiar with this tool and sharpen this tool so that we can use it to our advantage for our spiritual awakening. So that's what we've been engaged in. That's what we've been doing here, you know, both sharp, recognizing the tool, sharpening the tool, and then applying the tool of mindfulness to begin to investigate our predicament, <laughs> this predicament that we find ourselves in. This is from my teacher Hamid Ali from the, Di from the Diamond School. He says, to find the truth is not an easy thing. I have to contend with all the obstacles to seeing that truth. If we could, if we could see our experience, know our experience, we would quickly expand and deepen into the radiance of realization. If we could be in contact with our experience, we would quickly expand and deepen into the radiance of realization. And so in a way, that's what we're doing. We're, we're um, looking at these obstacles, looking at the obstacles so that we can deepen and expand into the radiance of realization. So the Buddha tells us that the cause of our suffering, it's beautiful, lays it out, the cause of the suffering is, he, he labels it, there's a, there's, it says, calls it craving. Craving. And, and the Pali word for that is tanha, it's craving. And so, and the, and the Buddha says, craving is the chief root of suffering. It is craving which gives rise to ever fresh rebirth, meaning every moment we are reborn again and again, ever fresh rebirth, and bound up with pleasure now, here and now, now there finds ever fresh delight. Now here, now there, we find ever fresh delight. It's like bound up with pleasure. Now here, now there, we find ever fresh delight. And this is, seems to be what we're caught up in, is this seeking for this ever fresh delight, this ever fresh pleasure. This is what, what we get engaged in, is this, this wheel, it's called the wheel of samsara, this, this wheel of seeking, of searching, of trying to find the pleasure, the happiness. You know, this is the, the basis of the, of the Buddha's teachings, is seeking for happiness in the wrong place, looking in the wrong place. And it's this craving, it's this, this force, this craving that, that propels us outward to an object. This propels us outward to an object that we think is going to bring this pleasure, and that force is bound up with self-interest. What's it going to give me? If I get that thing, what's it going to do for me? And so we're in this propelled kind of 
toppling forward, leaning forward, going after whatever that thing is, whether it's an object of the senses or whether it's an experience of our mind and meditation or whatever it is, we're leaning, searching, looking, going, seeking, and, and <laughs> you get to even see it's like this, you know. We're just kind of like on this treadmill. And that's the movement, the movement of the grasping, of the craving. It's kind of like a, when I was reflecting on this, it's sort of like this, this propelling into the seeking. is It's almost like a, um, a heat-seeking missile. You know, it's like we're just seeking the, where, the, where the, the heat is, which in other words is going to be the pleasure, what's going to give it to, us, give, give it to us. And we're sort of like this constant unsatisfaction. We're just not satisfied. We might get satisfied when we actually get that thing. Say we get a meditation experience that actually is calm and quiet and our mind settles. It's like, ah, it's like finally... I got what I wanted. And there is a release of that seeking and that agitation and that activity. We do, like, let go and rest. And it's delightful, and we feel so satisfied. But because the, 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 the fulfillment isn't actually dependent on that thing, it changes, right? The experience changes, our minds change, the, 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 the time of the day changes, our, our body changes, or the things in our environment changes, and then that thing's gone just because everything changes. So that thing we thought was, gave us so much fulfillment, it disappears, and then we're left without it again. We're seeking again. The agitation comes back, and it's like, what next? What next? What next is going to do it for me? And then if we think it's going to be that meditation experience, then we're going to seek that. Or maybe we give up on that and we go, oh, if only there are going to be some more vanilla ice cream and strawberries, that will make me happy. <laughs> or, you know, it's like then maybe we'll go for something else. It's really, I mean, I hope what we see is this is ego activity, this ego activity that is never satisfied. We wonder why we're never satisfied or we're never good enough or things aren't, you know, good enough for us or I'm not good enough, what I do isn't good enough. It's like because it, it, that's the, the ego will never be satisfied because its, its activity is seeking, its activity is searching because it, it's, it's a confused uh, uh, view, it's a confused view of the world doesn't know itself, doesn't know its nature. There's a sense of always feeling deficient, always feeling less than or uh, incomplete. Uh, there's an image of in the, Bud in the Buddhist world of the hungry ghost. You know, the hungry ghost, the hungry ghost has a, has a, a big mouth, big in all, it's a big hole, and it just can't get enough to fill it. You know, it's just always hungry, thirsting, wanting, hoping for something that it doesn't have. And this view, if we're in this view of our, of our deficient self, which is the ego view, 
This colors our whole world. It covers colors our whole reality, all of our perception. And we take ourselves to be that, and then the world is out there, and the world has all those things that could possibly fulfill us out there. And so we're just constantly checking this out and trying that and doing this and that. And we're just caught in this dualistic view that will never satisfy us. And it's very painful. This is the painful condition of human existence. And so the only thing we can do is to see through that, to see that, there's that, that, that the condition itself is going to be painful. So how do we find our way out of that condition? How do we find our way out? So the Buddha, in his um, discourse on the, um, uh, I'm not sure if it's in the Four Noble Truths, but as he's speaking about this grasping, he describes four great attachments. And he says these are the four most uh, strongest attachments that we have that we need to pay attention to. And so tonight I'd like to talk about those four attachments so we can... Uh, maybe look more directly at how we get caught in these four particular attachments. So first we have the, the, the craving, which is the seeking, and then the, once we get it, we, we attach, you know, kind of like what kind of, um, uh, there must be something in nature, some kind of parasite or something. That, you know, it's seeking for some kind of home, and then it poof, attaches on, and there it is, you know. What, what does that? A tick. <laughs> Ticks. <laughs> right, okay. <laughs> That's current. <laughs> so these little ticks running around, and then it looks, it looks for something, and then, poof, and it's happy. Right? So that's the attachment hmm? or clinging. It's a upadana in, in Pali, you know that. So, so there's the two functions of the, of, the, of, the, of the craving and the clinging, the craving or the attaching. Hmm? So for the tick, he's craving, craving, craving the su supportive conditions for his home and then finds them and digs in. That's what we do. <laughs> We're like that too. <laughs> so the first great attachment that the Buddha talks about is our attachment to sense pleasures. And it seems like the obvious place that we seek some kind of delight, some kind of pleasure, because in the body we have these five senses. We have our eyes and our nose and our mouth and our ears and our in our body, our skin, and, and there are pleasurable experiences through those senses. We, we live in a world that is filled with pleasure and pain, and conditions move from pleasure to pain, pleasure to pain, have you noticed? <laughs> pleasure to pain, and then all, and all the increments in between. So you have extreme pain and extreme pleasure, and then all the, the uh, levels in between. And that's the, the, the feeling tone or the flavor of, it, of experience. And so all experience is going to move between ex extreme pleasure and extreme pain, if you're in a human 
body, and we are. So that's, that's how, how it's going to be. So um, because that comes through the senses and also through the mind, we have extreme pain and extreme pleasure through the mind too. So all these, these six particular locations, we can seek pleasure because we know there is pleasure. So there's the so there because what we're trying to do is find the happiness, find satisfaction, find contentment. We're constantly going out through those six doors, six sense doors, looking for something pleasurable. So our attachment, we want to get we get attached to sense pleasure, and that's through the five senses. So that can be all kinds of things, can't it? We could we could. I could just ask you now, just name a couple of your favorite sense pleasures that you have a tendency to get attached to. Anybody like to just throw something out? Sunlight. There's one. That's good. Yeah, sunlight. What else? Music. Music. Mm-hmm. Food. Food. <laughs> Good food. <laughs> what else? I know you don't want to say any of the ones that are too, you know. <laughs> Sex? Yeah, our vices. We call them vices, right? <laughs> yeah. One more. Red wine, since we're doing vices. <laughs> Red wine, yeah. Yeah, and then there's some. There can be the kind of craving for it, and then we get it, and there, you know, there can be some attachment to having it, and maybe we even want to have it around, like bottles of red wine or whatever, you know. So, so yeah, so we kind of want this around in our environment. This I found in um, um, one of the magazines that I get. There are two little an- anecdotes next to each other. And it uh, says, some car owners buy emblems to make their models of cars look more upscale. Mercedes, Mercedes owners can buy the lettering indicating their cars are the high-end AMG for about $65 in their dealer's parts department. <laughs> you know, just get a little bit more pleasure knowing that. <laughs> You have an upscale car, right? No. This is um, one of those wonderful Sufi stories. I'm sure you've heard from Mullah Nasruddin, the sort of the, the fool and the the mystic uh, uh, Nasruddin. But this is just a classic. Mullah Nasruddin went to the market and saw a big bushel a uh, big bushel of hot chili peppers on sale. He bought them, returned home, and began to eat. A little while later, his disciples came and saw the mullah with tears streaming down his face, his mouth and tongue burning. Mullah, mullah, why do you keep eating those chili peppers? And he reached for another. As he reached for another, he replied, I keep waiting for the sweet one. <laughs> no, I keep waiting for the sweet one. You know, that's what we do. We sort of try this and try that and try that, but it doesn't really do it. So we're always having to move on to the next thing. I've told the story um, before, but it's, a, it's one of my kind of moments where I 
really saw my my craving and uh, 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 some attachment to beauty, to beautiful things. And I was with uh, this great um, Tibetan teacher in Nepal called Tuku Ugin Rinpoche. And he, I had the good fortune of spending five days with a group of people getting teachings from him. And he was one of these, one of the great uh, Dzogchen Tibetan masters. And um, uh, and he's he's died since then. It was some some years ago. And uh, he was teaching us about this. And um, he held up. He he, he Tibetan. Masters are taken very well care of. So on his on his uh, podium where he was sitting, he had his uh, china cup and saucer where people would serve him tea. And um, so when he was uh, demonstrating this uh, tendency towards craving and clinging, he held up. He took his beautiful china teacup and he held it up. And he's just holding it in his hand, and he says, "He says, look at this, this china, this this teacup. You know how beautiful it is, and and how we can just so easily, you know, want to hold on to it and not want it to break, not want anything to happen to it because it's so beautiful and so precious." And I remember as he was 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 holding up the teacup, and I could just feel myself just leaning in and going, "Wow." That's a beautiful teacup. <laughs> you know, it's so fine and delicate, and the lines, and it had a little gold trim around it. And I'm, I'm just leaning in, oh, and I'm, I, I thought, I'd love to have a teacup <laughs> like that. <laughs> and I could just feel my whole self becoming somebody who wanted that teacup and who would feel so much better if I had a teacup like that for my tea. You know, and then this whole, and I could just, it's it's just like, I could just see the whole thing happening. Well, I didn't see it in the moment. It was just, I was just, I really believed it for a little bit. I thought I really did need to have that china teacup, that quality of teacup. But then, then I, I kind of woke up from it. I kind of, it's like waking up from a dream, sort of. It's like, I was in the dream, really being the one who needed that. And and wanting that, and even imagining myself having that, and then like waking up, you know, it's like pop. You just oh wait, <laughs> that's right. That's just craving. That's just <laughs> clinging, you know. And then then I'm back. I'm I'm back here. I'm I'm someone who is okay again. I'm I'm okay without the teacup. And then I don't have to go into the whole kind of fear of if I had that teacup, something might happen to that teacup. And if something happens to it, how would I ever replace it? And who would I be without the teacup? You know, so I didn't have to live that dream out. I didn't have to play that whole, whole uh, be that one who was living in that fear, which is associated with the attachment. You can't have attachment without fear. That's the clinging, the craving. It's it's all embedded in that attachment. So I could just see that whole thing arising, and it was such a powerful teaching for me, because because I was with a master, and there was probably some very strong transmission coming through in that teaching, and and I somehow I was able to just be pierced out of that dream, 
in that moment and, and have the Dharma insight. So, you know, this is very, very powerful for me. And sometimes we are in a place, there's enough awareness, there's enough wisdom, where we may see ourselves actually becoming the one who believes that we need to have that pleasure. And then we wake up. And then, right, back, back here, back in reality again. Yeah. Seeing the difference between the imaginary, the fabricated reality of our mind, and then see that popped, and then back, back. And so, so in our practice, it's this: we practice this coming back because because we want to get into that uh, habit of 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 detaching from our mental fabrications, our mental formations, because, because when we do this, we live in this dream. We live in the dream of our, of our mind, of our fabricated reality, and it's, and it's not. It's detached. It's, it's divorced from what's real and what's true. And then we wonder why we feel so dissociated or lost or not present or anxious or fearful. We're just not here. We're living in these, these dreams. So sometimes we can see it. And, and I think I quoted uh, the Buddha about this once before on this retreat, but it's not like we're not supposed to have beautiful things and that we can't have beautiful things but as uh, or pleasurable things. But as the Buddha said, what is beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer strives after them. What's beautiful in the world remains so, but the wise one no longer is dependent on those things because the wise one knows where true happiness is, where true pleasure lives. And, and being connected to reality and to essential truth is the highest pleasure. <laughs> it's the highest bliss. The sensory pleasure pales. I mean, you, it, it's not even like anything. I mean, it just even loses any kind of glitter compared to the radiance of true realization, of true seeing, of clear seeing, of essential truth. So we, that's why as spiritual practitioners, we don't want to get too distracted. We don't want to get too distracted with the things of the world because there, it, there's a, we can lose our way because there's a lot of very pleasurable and exciting things out there but they're temporary, very temporary. Everything that is born into this world is going to pass away, is going to die. So the, our attachment to sense pleasures. The second great attachment that the Buddha points out is our attachment to views and opinions. Attachment to views and opinions. And I love reading this. I probably read it on every retreat, but I think it just, just points to this so well. 
from Ajahn Chah, the great Thai master, when he was asked the greatest, what greatest hindrance his students had, he said, opinions, views, and ideas about things. Their minds are filled with opinions about things. They are too clever to listen to others. It is like water in a cup. If the cup is filled with dirty, stale water, it is useless. Only after the old water is thrown out can the cup become useful. You must empty your minds of opinions. Then you will see. And we get, this is, this is again what happens for us. We get so, we believe what our minds tell us. And then we think that that's what's true. And we take positions. We get caught up in our view of things and say, that's the way it is. How absolutely certain we are about who we take ourselves to be. I am somebody who is so deficient. I am someone who is so unworthy of love. I am someone who is so um, un in incapable of doing well at my job. I'm just not a good mother. I'm um, I'm just I'm just weak. I can't I can't feeb I'm feeble. I'm I'm unattractive. <laughs> I mean I mean we could all fill in the blanks, right? You know, and this view becomes so fixed, and we believe it. It's just one of the views that we have, one of the opinions we have, but the one that is really so painful. And we, you know, often don't question it. It just seems so part of the fabric of our, our identity, of our of our image, and then who we think other people are, and our views about. Uh, situations and communities and our views about governments and countries and the world and social situations and everything seems so fixed if we're not looking more deeply. When I, I was uh, here last October uh, for a month, some of you know, and it was during the time right before the presidential elections. And um, and so I had the chance of watching some of the things that were happening on TV. I was uh, staying over um, at near at Chris at uh, Donna's and Pat's, and um, Chris was around. And so so sometimes we would watch some of the things on that were happening on TV. And of course, I will admit that I you know completely am in love with my president, which. <laughs> is just, just such a remarkable thing to be saying. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I just <laughs> I mean, I just never thought I'd see the day when I, you know, would sit here and, and, and say that and actually feel about feel the way I do about him, you know. And <laughs> I have a love affair with my president. You know? <laughs> I dream about him. watching some of the the thing the the um speeches on TV and of course the uh, um debates with um McCain and Obama and I remember feeling and I was joking around with Chris about this you know I remember feeling so proud that I was a democrat you know and I would listen to John McCain and I'd think he's just you know he I won't even say it I can't say it <laughs> 
you know, this really strong view about him and a really strong view about Obama, you know, and, and I so, you know, just could feel the sense of feeling so good that I was a Democrat and that I was in favor of Obama, you know, and it was just like I knew who I was. <laughs> You know, my whole identity was built up around this, and I had a lot of support in my <laughs> country, you know, and I was really part of something, and I really belonged, and, you know, and then it was like, and I think Chris and I were la laughing about this, you know, it's just a view. Like, it doesn't have anything to it. You know, the people, there were, as, there were so many people who felt exactly that way towards John McCain. And they thought they were right, too. And they felt good about who they were. And they felt good about what they believed and, and, and their views about Obama. And, I could, and, 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 and we were just kind of feeling into that. It's just a view. There's, there's nothing to it underneath. It's just a position. It's just a view. And this is, it, it, we, we usually don't, we don't recognize it. This is from um, Sogyal Rinpoche, another Tibetan uh, master. He says, wrong views and wrong convictions can be the most devastating of all of our delusions. Surely Adolf Hitler and Pol Pot must have been convinced that they were right too. It's kind of chilling, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And yet each and every one of us has that same dangerous tendency as they had to form convictions, believe them without question, and act on them, so bringing down suffering not only on ourselves, but on all those around us. Attachment to our views and opinions. And depending on where those views land and who they land in, can be pretty serious, pretty devastating. We see that. We know that. We just have to look around. Each and every one of us has that same dangerous tendency. And we can see it every time we believe our mind. Every time our mind says, this is how it is. And we go, yep, that's how it is, without questioning. And so Gil goes on to say, on the other hand, the heart of the Buddha's teachings is to see the actual state of things as they are. And this is called the true view. It is a view that is all-embracing, as the role of spiritual teachings is precisely to give us a complete perspective on the nature of mind and reality. To have a complete perspective, not a limited, small, defined view. What would it mean to have a complete view, a perspective of the nature of the mind and reality? This is what we're getting a glimpse into. We're kind of starting to pull away the curtain, pull away the veil, the veil of these misconceptions, and start to see or in, in, investigate into what's true, the true view, the true reality. 
And as you know, on the Eightfold Noble Path and the fourth, found, uh, fourth Noble Truth of the Buddha, the first factor on the Eightfold Noble Path is wise view, is right view. It's the first step in the pa on the path is to clarify the view. And, and that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing here is we're working with the view. How are we perceiving? How are we seeing? What are we taking to be true? How can we let go, become non-attached to our views and opinions so that we're not limited by them, we're not defined by them? All of our ideas, all of our conceptions, all of our perceptions, not get trapped, not get caught, imprisoned in a, in a small view of reality. And when we question that, there is a possibility for something to expand, an expanded view, a, a, a wider view, an open view, which isn't just a view, but it then starts to become our experience. We live it. We're living that expansiveness. We're living in that spaciousness because it's the view, it's this way we identify with our minds that keep us in this sense of entrapment, imprisonment. In, um, there's a wonderful Pali word called niroda. It's one that we don't hear very much. And and you break down the word naroda, the N-I, N-I, uh, means without, and rhoda means a prison or confinement or an obstacle or a wall or impediment, anything that implies that, rhoda. And naroda means without impediment or free from confinement. Where, where we're actually out of the imprisonment, the imprisonment, or out of the confinement, um, the wall, of, uh, without the wall, this neuroda. It's like the, the house that I was speaking about the other night that burned down and there were no walls and there was just this view that you could see out in the hills and, the, and all around. And, we're free. It's like we, we break out of our own self-imposed prison by, by no longer being so caught and identified with our minds. Because the mind will have all kinds of views and opinions about things, and I think you've noticed that too. So our attachment to views and opinions also one that has to be seen through. Attachment to sense pleasures, attachment to views and opinions. The third great attachment is our attachment to rites and rituals. Mm -hmm. Rites and rituals. And of course, during the time of the Buddha, there were a lot of rites and rituals. <laughs> and if you go to India, Today, you know, there's rituals and you know happening everywhere, and not only India but all over Asia. A lot of the uh, Hindu and the Buddhist, Muslim uh, religions, there's tremendous uh, ritual 
And so when, during the time of the Buddha, this was a very um, strong uh, obstacle if one got attached and identified with their rites and rituals and didn't see through them. Um, and when this particular tradition was brought over to uh, the West, to, Ameri to the North America, our, our wise teachers, Joseph, at that time Joseph Goldstein and Jack Cornfield, brought them all, brought this practice over without the rites and rituals. So it's actually very stripped down what we practice here. Really, what mostly what we're practicing is just the basic foundational practice of mindfulness and then the teachings that support the deepening of the wisdom of that. But we don't, there are lots of rituals <laughs> that, um, that, that are, are associated in the lineage, the Theravada lineage, but we're not, we're, we're not really exposed to those very much because of the way this was brought over. But even so, our practice, the, the techniques, the, the way we meditate, the way we practice, can be an attachment. We get attached to the way that we meditate. We get attached to the, to the teachings and the way the teachings are delivered. We get attached to our teachers, you know, attached to the form of a retreat, attached to the way we want a community to um, be manifesting. I mean, we have all kinds of attachments around the form, around the rituals. This would all be part of the ritual. This is a ritual. We're doing a ritual here in this form, you know. And this, too, has to be let go of. You know, it all has to be let go of to be really free to, to move beyond any kind of confinement. We have to let it go. So it means we even have to, eventually, we have to let go of our meditation techniques. We have to let go of any rituals that we do around our meditation. You know, the... the, the um, uh, metaphor is that we are rowing our boat to the other shore. All of this, the forms and the practices and the teachings and the concepts and er the communities, the sanghas, all are part of the boat that we use to row across to the other shore. But the point is to get out of the boat. <laughs> Once you get to the other shore, if you stay in the boat <laughs> or you get out of the boat and then just carry the boat <laughs> along with you while you're on the other shore, you're still not going to be free. So you got to put down the boat <laughs> and walk free. Walk without all the forms. So getting to the other shore, truly getting to the other shore, means you are free of everything. You've let everything go because you really can't take anything with you. Ultimately, you can't take anything with you because everything will be some kind of burden, some kind of limitation, unless it's seen through for what it is, the nature of its existence. So you could do that with anything. Anything can become a habit and lose its original purpose. You can see that with the breathing. We use the breathing as a, a, a support, a part of the technique. And sometimes we're breathing 
And we're just breathing, and there's no real <laughs> contact with the breath. It's just, yeah, breathing in, breathing out, you know, very mechanical, you know, and the mind's kind of dull, and we're sort of half here, and, you know, it's just that. But I'm, I'm meditating, right, and just in and out, you know. Sometimes I feel the breath. It's like there's, it's just that there's not really a lot happening there. It's sort of a ritual. It becomes more of a ritual. Or walking meditation, we go out and do the ritual, right? We walk back and forth, back and forth, and we're spacing out and thinking about that and that. But we're walking, you know. It's a ritual. But we're not, we're not really taking it for what it is and using it as part of our practice to go deep into insight and reflection. And so so, so we're, we, we look at how are we using these things. Metta practice could really turn into a ritual, and then we use it to kind of not have to feel anything difficult or not have to really look at the sense of how I feel deficient. I'll just do metta, do metta, do metta. So sometimes these things become an obstacle to going deeper. Or, or in, um, we have bowing. You know, we've, we've left a lot of the bowing behind. But like in the Zen tradition, there's a lot of bowing. You know, you bow to your... Your, your cushion, you bow to the Buddha, you bow to the community, you bow to your food, you bow, you know, everything. But again, it just can be a ritual. And yet the bowing itself can, if one really deeply reflects on it, can have a lot of love and devotion and a sense of deep respect and a real sense of making contact and um, feeling deeply into the love and the care. But if it's just a ritual, we're not, we, don't, we don't really take it, use it for what it is. So this, too, has to go. You know, to just see, eventually we just see these are, these are all part of the boat, but the boat is empty. The boat eventually has to go. It's nothing. It's, it's, we have to see through it. It's just something we use until we don't need it anymore. And we don't need it anymore because we see through the illusion of form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form, the heart sutra. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. We see that all of this is just a dream within a dream. We wake up. We wake up from the dream. So attachment to rites and rituals, this too has to go. The last great attachment is the belief in the concept of self. This attachment to this concept of self being a separate, isolated self, a self that is different uh, from other, self and other, living in this kind of dualistic, separate world. And this attachment to this view, this view that, as we were just speaking before, gets reinforced through the belief in our thoughts, belief in our minds, every, the conceptions, the formations, uh, whatever our mind is dishing out, it creates this world of self and other. 
I have a sense of who I am, and I have a sense of what everything else is, and that's the way it is. <laughs> and we're not really often looking more deeply, looking into this attachment, into this um, attachment which is confusion or delusion, a misconception about the way things are. We have this lovely little um, ad, uh, uh, adage that goes from way woo way. Why are you so unhappy? Because 99.9% .9 of your thoughts are about you, and there isn't one. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the bottom line, really. <laughs> We believe, we're attached to the idea that we are born and that we will die and that we're moving through a continuum of time and space as an entity, an isolated entity. And we believe that this is how it is. And we impose this idea on top of a reality that is essentially selfless or empty. It, is, it, is, it doesn't have this substance to it. It doesn't have this solidity to it that we believe it does, that we think it does. And we start to see when we look at our experience how this begins to break apart. We see, we've been speaking about this, where the, you see a thought, many people, not everybody sees this, but you see a thought and then you see the end of the thought. The thought stops, and then another one starts. You can actually start to see sometimes a little gap, or you know, the, the coming and the going, the arising and passing, or an image, or a sensation, or sound, a taste. You actually start to feel the changing, shifting reality that things just are not so solid. Who I take myself to be is not so solid. And many people in here start to feel that. It's like, you know, sometimes it's scary. Sometimes it's unsettling. It's, but I thought that I was more substantial, and actually I'm finding out I'm not so substantial. That, you know, sometimes I actually feel that there's not much here at all. There's, sometimes there's a sense that there's nothing. I can't even feel my body. I, I don't have a sense of a form, the form that I take myself to be. All kinds of things start giving us evidence for this truth. And yet, because it's very, um, um, can be a little shocking to find out that you're not as solid as you thought you were, it can be, you know, something we have to, we've been speaking about, you reconstruct. You have to get the mortar out, get the put the bricks and reconstruct the, the wall because it's a, you know, little, can be a little much to face this truth or to let go of this view. And so this is a gradual process to start to really look into the truth of who we are and what this uh, 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 being that we take ourselves to be really is. In the Buddhist, in, in the Buddhist psychology, the, the, uh, the, 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 the sense of self that we take ourselves to be is broken down into what's called the five aggregates or five uh, conditions that we cling to as a sense of ourself. 
And these are five processes that actually make up our life and give us the constellation of who we take ourselves to be. And these five conditions that we can cling to, we cling to as me or mine or I, the first one obviously is the body, this condition of the body that we use and we have as a physical organism through which we experience our life, the senses, this body. And if we identify with it as me, then we'll suffer because this body changes as all conditions changes. And and one of the things, part of the change is sickness and death. So if I think that's who I am, then I'm going to believe I'm going to get sick and die. And in spiritual teachings, we challenge that belief. We challenge that belief because truly what dies is the body. And if I am not my body, then what dies? So we start to question these things. This body is one of the conditions that that comes into being that I take to be myself. Another condition is called uh, a feeling, which is a mental factor that gives the flavor of experience, pleasant, unpleasant, or somewhere in between. That everything uh, through the mind, through this mental condition, we have a sense of the flavor of experience, and that's part of who we also take ourselves to be. But it's just a a condition of mind that arises and passes, sometimes pleasant, sometimes unpleasant, just an impersonal condition. But we cling to it. We say, it's me. Another condition that arises is perception. Perception, another mental factor. There's four mental factors. The body is the physical, and the other four are mental. So feeling is one. Perception. Perception arises. Perception is that which can discriminate and sort out uh, the objects and label them and, and make distinctions. And that, that's that kind of perception, light and dark and shapes and colors. And, and then the form, this, this world starts to take shape, and we can label it through our learning of language. Impersonal, an impersonal condition. <coughs> Mental formations, the mind, the thoughts, the images, the, the formations, the conceptions, that give rise to our speech and our action through volitions, volition, another mental factor that arises. Speech. Speech is just an exaggeration of what's already going on in the mind. We have thoughts and then we talk. <laughs> More conceptions, you know, just this impersonal phenomena. So body, the physical, feeling, perception, mental formations, and the fourth one is consciousness. These five factors that make up, that give us a sense of self, consciousness. And consciousness is the basic of awareness, the basic of awareness of objects, of existence, that, that we can perceive through the light of consciousness. And it's the light of consciousness, the illumination of our consciousness that makes all experience possible. Because without the illumination, without the light, 
that that fills through that filters through consciousness that is consciousness we would not have experience we wouldn't nothing would be illuminated we wouldn't know anything there has to be light there has to be something that makes everything apparent makes the world come into manifestation it's consciousness and so these are the five the five conditions that are present and they're present in every moment of existence they rise together and they pass together they rise together and pass together and if we cling on to them then we say it's me it's mine but as we start to see through and we penetrate into the Dharma insight, it starts to break up. And things are not then as they appear. Things are not as they appear. This poem from Mary Oliver, and it, it actually reads kind of like a, a Zen koan. I, something to really deeply reflect on. It goes like this. For years and years I struggled just to love my life. And then the butterfly rose, weightless in the wind. Don't love your life too much, it said, and vanished in the world. Don't love your life too much, it said and vanished into the world. It's kind of like that. The butterfly rose, weightless in the wind, free, not held down by any condition, any belief, any attachment. You can't be weightless in the wind if there is attachment. And attachment is loving too much. <laughs> loving the conditions of this world too much. And the teachings say, let go. Let go of the conditions. Let go of the conditions, the outer conditions. Let go of the inner conditions. And then begin to see things as they actually are. And then see what's there. See what's truly yours. See what truly belongs to you then. Without your conceptions, without your preconceptions, without your ideas. And I'm thinking of Nisargadatta who said, Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. Love tells me I'm everything. And between the two, my life flows. Maybe in the end, we never lose anything, but gain everything. Because then nothing's confined. And if nothing's confined, then everything is at our fingertips. Everything's here, everything's apparent. Because you are that. Love says you are everything. 
not separate, interconnected. One taste. This is the discovery. This is the realization, the, the radiance of realization. When we look deeply at what's true, So we don't want to be afraid of our attachments. We don't want to be afraid because if we're afraid, that's more attachment. So to to even let our attachments be free, (laughs) let the attachments be free because as soon as we start saying, no, I don't want to be attached, then we're attached to not being attached. So we even need to let our attachments be free and see that you're not that either. You're none of it. Let it all go. Let it all go. And find out who you are. I'll end with this from Zen Master Dogen. You just even like to say that. Zen Master Dogen. (laughs) (laughs) Power in it, right? (laughs) I almost feel like Zen Master Dogen. (laughs) You know? (laughs) All you have to do is just say it. (laughs) You can be it. (laughs) He says, treading along in this dreamlike, illusory realm, without looking for traces I may have left. A cuckoo song beckons me to return home. Hearing this, I tilt my head to see who has told me to turn back. But do not ask me where I'm going as I travel in this limitless world where every step I take is home. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.